Hospice News reporter Holly Vossel, welcoming you to another episode of our Elevate podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the ways the coronavirus pandemic has complicated caregiver support, including access to respite care. We'll go over the types of unique challenges the pandemic has posed for family caregivers and how hospices responded to those changing needs. This includes the availability of respite care, which diminished during the outbreak due to limited access to facilities. Today, I'm joined by Dr. B.J. Miller, internal medicine, hospice, and palliative care physician and co-founder of Metal Health in Mill Valley, California. Hello, B.J. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Holly. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah. Well, Dr. Miller, just as a little introduction to him, has experienced palliative medicine as both a clinician and as a patient. BJ has practiced and taught in all major settings, home, hospital, clinic, and residential care facilities. In his work, he draws upon his personal experiences with disability and his undergraduate studies in art history as much as his medical education. BJ's speaks internationally on the themes of living well in the face of illness, and he's also co-authored a book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death, designed to educate the public about the options and obstacles that patients and families encounter at the end of a life. And I think that does include caregiving as our topic today. So thanks again so much for joining us today, Dr. Miller. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And call me BJ, Holly. As you like, whatever you like. <laughs> of course. So sorry. I love it. You're, you're allowing that. <laughs> well, we oh, can yeah. start off human today. To human to human. Human to human, exactly. And as we talk about this today, I think we can just start our discussion off with a question about maybe what are the most pressing needs and challenges for family caregivers? And maybe how did the pandemic, how did all of that change as the pandemic struck? So, yeah. So, I'll answer that question from, you know, from my perch this last year, really since COVID, my mm-hmm. partner Sonia and I, we, we kind of repurposed what we were, some of the stuff we were doing and decided to hang the shingle for mental health. And we've been doing that about a year. And one of the reasons we did that was to create, you take advantage of telehealth, have a way for folks in the public whether they're identified as a patient or disabled or a caregiver or family or friend, or however people were identifying themselves, they could reach out to us directly. So we were expressly making it available so caregivers had an outlet too. Mm-hmm. My life in clinical, traditional clinical medicine, I would, I would see family members along with the patient, but to, to get into our clinic, the patient had to come in. So now we have this pathway where caregivers can reach out directly. So not to spend too much time plugging mental health, but it just gets at one of the big reasons why we started this thing in the first place. So with that, you know, so it turns out that most of the folks reaching out to us so far are actually identifying as caregivers or family or friends. And what I'm seeing through this portal is it in many ways feels like a you know this an, an exaggerated or a version of what I had been seeing for years as a as a pad of care doc, namely mm-hmm. that caregiving is ubiquitous and that the numbers of people who are involved one way or another caring for another human being, informally or formally, are enormous. It's heard between forty and fifty million in the U.S. Many of those folks trying to hold down a job or raise kids of their own, etc. And that the work is sort of quietly happening all over the place, under-recognized, 
under supported by that I mean policies around family leave, et cetera, uh, access to anything approaching like training, like how the hell do we how do we do this caregiving thing? Mm-hmm. So all these things, this, this this huge chunk of the population doing really, really important, like invaluably important work that would economically amount to billions of dollars and pulling in the way out of the rest of their lives. So just just a really hard, hard puzzle. And mm-hmm. that hard, hard puzzle has just gotten harder in that the needs of folks who are struggling one way or another are up. The volume of people struggling are, is up. The complexity of the needs is up. We are living longer with complex illness, which means the caregiving endeavor lasts a long time. It's not like you can sort of step out of your life for a couple weeks Mm-hmm. and see something through to the end. It's, it's much longer than that as a rule. The longer commitment, so, right. Yes, yes. Yeah. And this idea that you can put your life on hold to go do this is becoming increasingly just not feasible. Not not possible. So, <laughs> not possible. Yeah, so, just impossible. We should just call it what it is, impossible. So I'm seeing, in a sense, in other words, maybe more of the same, and that picture was already pretty brutal, and it's just gotten more brutal worse. So what are some of those problems that the pandemic has sort of created when it comes to that caregiving support and how hospices can provide it? I know one big one is definitely that need to socially distance. And that, like I mentioned in the top of the hour, the limited access to facilities. What are some of the other problems that made it sort just sort of brutal, like you mentioned? You mean COVID-specific? Right. Yeah. Yeah. During the COVID, this COVID period. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So the physical distance requirements, the idea that people we are loving, that we could be a danger to each other or being with someone who would be a danger to us. All of a sudden, people, besides just being sources of a lot of effort, became a source of some kind of threat. So there's an added psychological and practical burden there. And then the way we usually kind of, you know, a salve for that stress very often is actually just being in person, touching one another, being mm-hmm. with one another. And so our workloads got up and the, and the ways that we find meaning and value in our work has been cut off. So it's a kind of a double whammy that way. You know, practically speaking, what I've been encouraging, it has lent some more urgency to hospice referrals and conversations I've had because if someone's on the fence about hospice being appropriate, well, now as a way to avoid a hospital, as a way to get some care in the home without needing to go through the clinic or the hospital is an added premium. The sort of wraparound services of the hospice benefit are only more poignantly important now because, of course, people have financial stressors on top of this. And so it's not just mm-hmm. access to medications that is an issue here, or medical support. It's all the social support, too. So the hospice benefit as such has become even more poignant, even more precious, and that has allowed me and others, I think, to push people maybe a little bit more forcefully than usual towards hospice enrollment. So that's one thing I've experienced. I don't know that the numbers bear that out if hospice enrollment is up, but it has been an invaluable way to sort of decompress the health system and for people to get some some version of the care that they need. And as so far as that care answer, that those yeah. caregivers need also, what are some of the strategies that hospices are kind of, or, or even mental health 
What are some of the hospices? Mm-hmm. You mentioned some of those extra support avenues that you're giving to these caregivers as those numbers sort of rise in hospice. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that we you've heard a lot of our reports of rising demand. There's a lot of data to back that. What are some of the strategies that hospice and palliative care providers like mental health are, are using in these unique circumstances? Um, why don't you start off listing some of the ones that you've tried and maybe others that you might recommend to providers? Well, right, right on. I mean, so first and foremost, just getting hospice and palliative care in the mix is a way, is a, as in our field, as you know well, Holly, we, the unit of care, patient and the caregiver or the individual and the family, however we want to put it. So just getting folks into this mode of care has, brings with it support for caregiver a place, a time and space for the caregivers needs to be uh, addressed and even articulated. So that alone, just getting people in front of this mode of care itself is an added benefit right out of the chutes. Um, but beyond that, you know, so we've spent a lot of our time at mental health offering time and space up to caregivers for their own, for them to talk about their lives, not just as their lives in or bump into the, the patient per se, so we spend mm-hmm. hours and hours with people, letting them be heard, helping them feel heard and seen, helping them sort of uptick their own needs in the mix versus a sort of sacrificial mode of caregiving that is all too common, and basically offering some skilled emotional and psychological support. That's gone a long way. We've also, so those are individual sessions. We've also started a, a monthly free webinar series so people can have some place to turn to to ask questions about caregiving, about self-care, about grief, to get practical tips about how to address the activities of daily living, etc. So we've started these monthly free webinars that address caregiver needs. Those have been, I've loved those. Those have been really, they're sort of part informational and part sort of support group. And group therapy mm-hmm. even. Just like, there's like that just chat Q&A feature in them oftentimes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. And people can be seen and see and others that they're not alone, hear practical tips from others, share stories. All that has been really beautiful. So that I think so it's really giving helpful. that communication. It sounds like that communication part is is really important as in terms of like stepping up the game. You still have to find that way whatever that avenue is, um, and your terms, you, right you went virtual with it. Yeah. I know a lot right of on. it can't, yeah, it can't always be the, the substitute, but that is a good way to definitely give those caregivers a voice and, and another avenue of support. That's right. What are some other ways that providers can work towards improving upon that caring for their caregiver? I think beginning to name it as its own thing and fleshing those needs out is not as simply as complements or a piece of the patient's care puzzle, but the needs of caregivers mm-hmm. specifically to caregivers and including issues uh, just like the rest of the field needs to do more of, including the cultural overlays that affect how this work gets done, how it feels to do this work, what other sort of neighborhood support systems exist in that cultural group, in their neighborhood. So I've gotten a lot more, started paying a lot closer attention to, you know, informal sort of neighborhood groups, churches and and places of faith that are beginning to Mm -hmm. either train folks in the basics of caregiving or at least offer a safe place for people to come talk about it. That's Mm -hmm. been really encouraging. I've been advising a, a group called Empathy, 
These guys have made this app that just kind of blows my mind. It's pretty specific to the end of life space for families, uh, for caregivers and families around grief and around the death moment through that the app. That part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a stunning app, but through that app, you can close, you know, cable accounts, phone accounts, bank accounts just through the app versus taking 10 death certificates all over God's green earth to close this or that <laughs> account, which usually takes a year or more. So that's been really encouraging to see the private sector innovate around the needs of caregivers. I'm not aware of what's going on at the policy level, but I'm hoping there, the FMLA process is being revisited and buttressed. I believe there may be legislation to that end, but you might know more than I do, Holly. But I'm assuming with the more caregiver stories in the news as well, so I talk about it anytime I'm on a podcast or being interviewed, trying to sort of up these needs onto, onto center stage. Mm-hmm. CTAC, the Coalition to Transform Advanced Care, CTAC, I'm on their board, and that they as an organization are dr- turning dramatic attention towards equity, but also to the needs of caregivers. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching other groups round this piece of the puzzle out. We've always thought we took care of caregivers and palliative care, but, you know, it's sort of like grief. It's part of our purview, but when you look at it, we don't really have a ton of structural supports in place for, these, for this right. piece of the puzzle. And I, I think that's beginning to be fleshed out. I think that is definitely worth noting as far as some of that support could be in terms of needing that respite, that break from caregiving. And I, I want to mm-hmm. also touch on that and make sure that we mention that in, in this podcast. So just to circle around to that a- aspect, how do you feel like the pandemic has impacted or affected as- access to caregivers' ability to seek that respite care you know, my experience is that that's a dramatically underutilized piece of the hospice benefit to begin with. And then hmm. further strength, this, I don't know that a lot of people are aware of it or take advantage of it. I don't have numbers. That's just an anecdotal sense. So to the degree that's true, I mean, I think it's been underutilized to begin with. I think the degree to which it has been used usually means the patient going for a stay in a, in a nursing home or long-term care facility of some kind, et cetera. And now, of course, you can't just easily pop in and out of a nursing home. So I think we've choked right. off the avenue for respite care as it's usually conceived. Uh, mm-hmm. So that right there, that chops it off at the knees pretty quickly. Couple that with the other sort of a form of respite care in, in less formal, at least, or at least not part of the benefit, which is, you know, like adult daycare centers. Those right. have been on decline for years. Yeah, uh, there's some that pop up, least, but not with enough yeah. veracity. So yeah. Speak. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think so. Respite care, I think, again, generally underutilized to begin with, and now dramatically already further choked off just because the structural means of providing that support are sort of inaccessible for now, anyway. For now, so extra yeah. big problem for now. Yeah, right. So, how have you seen you know providers navigate that access issue and and better facilitate respite care? You can even mention some of that your own that you're that you're doing or mm-hmm. other suggestions that you might have for providers. Well, it's a good question. Let's think about that. So <laughs> let's unpack I'm it. not aware. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what I'm mostly seeing is or feeling, sensing is more need than solution so far. So I'd be curious, I should check in with some of my colleagues who are actively working in hospice right now. I wonder no, what we- there no doubt there are folks who are coming up with scrappy workarounds here. I just am not right. aware of them. You know, for what I'm seeing in, the, in my little mental health corner of the world, 
we keep in trying beautiful to California. <laughs> in beautiful California, right? On, <laughs> on that beautiful World Wide Web. We are, you know, con- trying to continue to to name, to articulate ourselves, to to be relevant to caregivers, and to continue to offer more support one way or another, like I mentioned, the webinars, et cetera. So we're, that's kind of what we're doing. I bet there are all sorts of other cool things happening. One thing I've seen with metal is encouraging sometimes the patients will come to us uh, themselves and through conversation will elicit, will, un, will uncover some needs that their caregivers are having. And so extending the work that started with a patient to include the caregiver encouraging people to gift their caregiver sessions with us has been very has been interesting and and, and and beautiful not like hundreds of thousands of people are doing that but it's something so i think this increased awareness and offering at least an outlet for some support we've seen a sort of an uptick of, of, of people gifting sessions with us to caregivers yeah and then a, a more just, i can't remember the last time it was like last week or two weeks ago there, are, there seem to be more online, like podcast offerings, too, for caregiver specific. Again, all around support and offering some curated information. But I think you're pointing to something more structural on the ground, not just this virtual thing. And honestly, Holly, I, I'm I'm not. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't <laughs> know what what is happening, if anything, along those lines. Because how do you work around getting someone into a nursing facility, for example, for a respite week? Right. I think it's practically right. speaking not not possible. And then how? Yeah, you can't work around some of these challenges that, that the pandemic has created. But I do right. want to touch back on something you mentioned as far as you've seen that need increase as far mm-hmm. as the need for respite care. So how do you see that rising demand for respite care occur during the pandemic and then maybe now, too, because we're still in it, unfortunately? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'm sort of boots on the ground. What I'm hearing from folks is total exhaustion, total exasperation. They were already teetering, and then the pandemic just sort of pushed them over the edge. And then you add a lot of work stressors and financial stressors that go with that, and people are just desperate. So Mm -hmm. the way the need for respite, per se, is very few people come to me and say, or come to us and say, hey, I, I need respite care. Help me find it. You know, most of the, most of these folks don't even know that there's such a thing called respite care. Respite care. So I'm just saying, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm just seeing people who are overwhelmed. Yeah. So, yeah. In an uh, overwhelming sure situation. Yeah. yeah. No, it does. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I, I yeah. definitely see that. I wonder if, you know, coming out as we, if we, as we move through this, as you're talking, you know, I wonder how, you know, how NHPCO, how CAPSI, how CTAC, how other organizations, how, how hospice news, how all of us can sort of somehow, it'd be very interesting to inventory these needs, like like our conversation is getting at. And it does feel like we as a field, rather than individual providers or, or small organizations, it feels like this is a real moment for our field to respond en masse and in big, big structural ways. So I just want right. to sort of name that hope that are that the leaders will kind of come together and and put together basically a punch list and lessons learned from the pandemic. I think there's going to be an enormous opportunity to advance the field of hospice and palliative medicine here in terms of people being aware of the of of, of the work we do and and coming to it, but also mm-hmm. for us to up our game and what we offer people and get uh, get more creative. Uh, so right. I just want to including mm, caregiving let, support, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, that's a good absolutely. T- point absolutely. to mention. <laughs> 
yeah. No, that's really, I think, a, a very solid point and something I was on definitely on my list of things to ask you when you were talking about how do you know you there's a lot of unknowns and how do you answer some of these questions I'm asking you are very are hard to address and and hard to not know BJ when we don't know what's going to happen no one has that right. crystal ball in front of them right on. but just from what you've it, your experience in this field as a patient and a provider, um, as just what you're seeing alone in the pandemic as well, what do you think might be just some of the changes that could be good? Like you mentioned, that hope from the pandemic that hospices can expect to see, at least when it comes to that caregiving support element. Mm-hmm. What might be changes that could impact that? Well, I think, like I said earlier, I think the respite piece of the of the hospice bundle, the the benefit is underutilized, underknown. I, I mean, I don't know how many hospice families who are in hospice have, have really have gotten the idea that there is this respite benefit. So I think right out of the shoot, one would be just to improve communication around the services that are already cl- included in the hospice benefit, encouraging people to mm-hmm. utilize them. That four levels, um, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that that's been happening. I think a lot of so again, my sense is that's underutilized. Again, it's just a sense. So, so one thing would be for us to really articulate ourselves very clearly, very pitch our message directly to caregivers, speak directly to them, and speak directly to patients. Because most patients, you know, you know, that's the one reason that people want to hasten their death is because they feel like a burden, and they feel like a burden because they look across the room at their loved one or caregiver who's completely stressed out for obvious reasons. So, so, so speaking to that part of the conscience of the patient and involving them in helping to find support for caregivers or encouraging them to encourage their caregivers to get support. I think there's a lot of beautiful work that could be done there. I think that would only make a patient feel better if they knew that their caregiver was getting the love that they needed too. So I think that right. is largely a communications issue. And I think we could do a lot better job as a field communicating to our public. We've been futzing around with that for years and have yet to hit on the sort of the right suite of messages that lands with people. But I think I think now's the time for us to get, you know, very, very serious around how we market our, our work. So that's one Good thing. I think right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, a favorite of mine, having worked at a little place in the hospice project for years, is to continue to find ways to create places. Love home care, absolutely. But freestanding hospice houses remain way, you know, as a segment, is dramatically underdeveloped in my experience. Both knowing that while many, you know, most people say they want to die at home, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not everyone, A, and not everyone has a home, B. And, you know, I think that a lot of people will say they want to die at home, but when it comes down to it, it actually gets pretty dang hard, especially on the families. So if we found ways to make hospice houses facilities, not a repurposed medical facility, not a, not a few rooms in a nursing home, but a purpose-built hospice house, which we know is a beautiful environment of care where magic happens, but they're not fundable. They're not supportable currently. So there's a policy piece to that. There's an innovation piece to that. So I do think building institute places where people can go and get support and offload the caregiver. I think adult daycare, we have to have a very serious conversation about that industry, which has just sclerosed. There, that, there needs to be some serious innovation around 
finding ways to make those biz- businesses viable. So there's a handful of, of top of mind thoughts anyway. Right. And and I think that's a lot too, as far as what could be changing. You mentioned that policy and that was definitely something on our radar too, as far as a question asked um, with the bills that are being proposed in House and Senate that could extend that respite care benefit period and allow patients to receive their or and their families to receive that care in their homes as opposed to a facility. I mean, I, I know that those bills seem to have died in the committee, but there might be policy changes that could be happening or, or could be needed that could improve that access to respite care for caregivers. I know you were speaking about it a little bit as far as some of that inventory list and what could be on that stockpile of things that caregiver needs that that universal wish list that could be part of that public policy change what do you think might be some of those aspects to it that inventory of well, caregiver support needs that should be yeah. you know, universal right on well so one would be revisiting like family and medical leave act stuff excuse me fmla and i don't you know there an fmla needs to be part of a, a broader suite of, of services uh, that are much more realistic about what people actually need. I mean, I think broadly speaking, we're at a moment in time where there's reckoning all over the place, and it's a clarity that our systems aren't really up to the experience, the reality that people are facing on the ground. And so there's this wholesale need to update just about everything, including, mm-hmm. most importantly, our health system. So, So one on that wish list would be, revisiting uh, medical leave. So to be much more supportive mm-hmm. of family members who are trying to work and care for somebody, huge piece of the puzzle. Finding a way to support, pay for, and support freestanding hospice houses, like I mentioned. Those, I think, for so many reasons, I think that could really advance care in our country in all sorts of ways, including by involving non-clinicians, including architects, developers, getting people outside of the medical model to think about participating in this kind of care. That was something I saw at Zen Hospice Project that was just so beautiful. It could be, much more could be done there. So freestanding hospice houses, yes. Uh, Adult daycare, yes. You know, training, you know, accessible, realistic training for caregivers. There are a handful of programs that I'm aware of, but most people don't know about them, um, and they're just sort of flying in the dark trying to learn on the job, hurting themselves, and sometimes their patients in the meantime. So right, that child-based care sort of yeah, yeah. learning on the spot, at, that training could go a long way. Yeah. And with the training, <laughs> generally could come support, you know, peer groups, places to vent with and learn from and to, you know, to be seen and heard, invaluable. So that would be, that sort of tranche would be on the wish list. What else? Oh, you know, I think also sort of rounding out all the allied issues that go with this. So, you know, bankruptcy, right? It's the number one health cost, the number one cause of personal bankruptcy. That's just, that's so, so sad. So financial counseling as a piece of this puzzle, I think is really, really key. I think we should yeah. be reaching out to estate planners to also to shore up and include the financial uh, uh, preparation for, for care and caregiving. I think is dramatically underdeveloped and really cool work in the making. Yeah, and then, yeah, gosh, I'm sure there are others, but those are the ones that come to mind on my on my wish list. And I suppose another one there is sort of up to all of us in society for us to 
begin to find ways to really honor this hard but beautiful work of caregiving. It, it is this, this essential human enterprise of giving and care, of giving and receiving care that everyone it affects everyone. So I think we mm-hmm. all could do a better job of honoring that. You know, I think a piece and part and parcel of that could be much better training for direct care workforce, home health aides, CNAs, much more training and support around palliative and end-of-life care. We're beginning to do a little bit of that with our friend Rebecca Edelman, a lawyer in Memphis in the long-term care industry. So training, so I'm moving off of family caregivers and onto professional caregivers, but home health aides, personal care attendants, CNAs, enormous workforce, underdeveloped, undersupported, huge, huge piece of this puzzle that can help offload families, et cetera, and keep people out of institutions and do all sorts of cool things if they had the support and training. So there's my top of mind wish list. It's a lot of wish list. <laughs> this is a yeah, substantive a yeah. wish list, but I think that yeah. you'd be hard pressed to find other providers that are not kind of echoing those. So it's, it's great to hear. Yeah that perspective. And I think that's a good note to, to wrap us up on with our time coming to an end today. But, you know, I really hope that our listeners gained further insight around this topic today. I, I know I did. <laughs> so I just wanted to thank you so much, BJ, for sharing your perspective. It was really great to have you with us on this episode of Elevate. Hmm, my pleasure, Holly. Talk yeah. to you for hours. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> And I want to thank everyone else for tuning in today as well. I hope you all take care for now and stay tuned for more from Hospice News.